Hello, and welcome back to Motherhood Interrupted. I'm your host, Kimberly Levy. This week, I'm joined by my friend, Ashley Shapiro, executive director and founder of Ed Cahoots, which is an educational therapy practice in LA and Greenwich, Connecticut, with a potential future expansion into the San Fernando Valley where Ashley is from. Services in her practice include reading, writing, math, executive functions, study skills, and even workshops for schools and their teachers. Not only does Ashley have this incredible business, but she's also on the board of advisors for UC Santa Cruz Ed Therapy Program. She's part of the adjunct faculty at California State Northridge, and she's also on the board of directors for the Association for Educational Therapists. In this episode, we cover what is educational therapy and how do we know when it's time to get educational therapy? We also cover prioritizing the critical developmental skills paired with the interests for your child that truly matter. We explore digital citizenship and the big one, when should our kids be reading? We cover so much more. Now listen, if you're interested in exploring how Ed Cahoots can support your family, you can call 310-400-0348 or you can simply email Ashley directly at ashley at edcahoots.com. You can also check out their website at www.edcahoots.com. I have all these details to contact Ashley and all the wonderful folks in her practice in the show notes. Check it out and let's dive in. Ashley Shapiro, welcome to Motherhood Interrupted. How are you? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me today. Gee, it's only taken us what, like three years to get you on. I know we've been talking (laughs) about it since I think you first started. I remember walking up hills when you launched your first three episodes pregnant with my second and you were my like daily walk listen. And now I have three. Okay. And I love that you have three because you and I live very bizarrely parallel lives. (laughs) Mm-hmm. So let's tell the people how we met because I think it's cute. I love our love story. <laughs> so I wonder if I remember it as accurately as you do. I feel like your memory is better than mine. But we were on a treadmill at Barry's boot camp, and I think you were pregnant. And you were telling someone next to us, a physician, about how you had downloaded an app called Ovia and it worked for you and you got pregnant right away, like faster than you planned. And I was standing there trying for my first and I heard you recommend this app. And I was like, wait, what was it? And you told me about it. And I think two weeks later, I ran into you on the treadmill again. And I was like, I'm pregnant. And then we proceeded to run for the remainder of our pregnancies, totally competitive with each other, but in denial, but like we would totally up each other's. And then we became like faster than every man standing next to us because we were holding ourselves accountable to being like the pregnant women badasses, if I'm allowed to say that. You can totally say that. (laughs) Um, That was a beautiful, wonderfully detailed recap. And um, I actually forgot, but I know that that is definitely true because I have the Ovia app to this day on my phone. So kudos, that was great. And then of course, we proceeded to have, both of us proceeded to have our three kids, which is weird because neither one of us were like, I mean, I didn't think I was going to have three kids, you know. Me neither. And we went through a lot in between at oddly similar times. We did. We, we sure did. And everyone knows all about my 
wild ride uh, trying to get baby London. I have, I have no shame. We, we paralleled each other through, I think, two miscarriages. And it was very odd because we would text each other randomly after having not checked in in like a year. And I would say, I'm pregnant. And you would say, I am too. And then like six weeks later, I would say, I said, I just lost the baby. And you were like, I'm so sorry. And I think like three days after that, you were like, I just lost one too. Yeah. And it was just our, our timing continued to be just this like uncanny parallel universe. For sure. And having a friend like that, that can actually like truly empathize with you is like priceless. So Agreed. now I'm like getting teary eyed. <laughs> Are your hormones, do you cry all the time? I don't know why I cry all the time. <laughs> um, I feel like they've regulated a bit this pregnancy, but I do remember crying. I couldn't watch any movies when I was postpartum with Evie or pregnant with my first because I just would cry. I, like, I don't know, but maybe I'm just moving directly into menopause. I mean, who knows? <laughs> I'm not even sure, but I can tell you, I just cry all the time. Um, but anyway, I so appreciate our friendship um, side note, but okay. So when it's just women don't talk about it, it's such a taboo in society and to have a friend go through it. And then it motivated me to tell other friends who were pregnant and I had a cousin who went through a miscarriage like shortly thereafter, both of us. And I felt like I was able to support her in just a really honest and authentic way because there was no need to hide it. And I, I wish women would talk about it more because it's unfortunately really common. And I think we're all just really emotionally unprepared. I agree with you. And it's, it is, what is it? Like a third of women have like have had so. a miscarriage. Yeah. And we're told to keep the pregnancy a secret in case you lose it. And my thought is, why would I want to go through this in secrecy? Like what I needed most was my female friends. And I will tell you the greatest thing that happened to me after my first miscarriage was my mom and aunt showed up and brought martinis like in bags that they could make at my house and were there to help me take care of my, at the time, I think two-year-old um, and just like spent the night, like hanging out with me and embracing that I could drink again. <laughs> we need Absolutely. women through this more than anything. We really do. I love that so much. And I agree with you that when, especially after having my first baby, I was like, okay, I can tell a handful of people. And I want to tell a handful of people that I'm pregnant because if something goes awry, I need the support. And like, I kind of consciously made that decision, but you know, I think every woman's different. Like my sister, I feel like holds her cards very close to the chest and she's not like a normal warm and fuzzy female that's like highly in touch with her emotions. So I don't know. I feel like everyone handles things differently, but for me, I definitely feel like I need my girlfriends too. And you're definitely at the forefront of that. So, and it's so wild. Okay. So tell the people how many, well, now we know how many kids we each have three kids. Tell us who, who are your kids and what are their ages? Okay. So I have Evie who's six and then I have Simon who's two and Jack who is now seven months. So, which is weird. She's a, she's a female. Her real name is Jacqueline, but we call her Jack. Yes. Oh yeah. I'm glad you clarified that. Cause I know that, but <laughs> clarify. Yeah. And then I have Carter six. So I have six, five and nine months. So we're literally very close. We like switched the gaps, right? Cause yeah. I have a four year gap between my first two and a yes. two year gap between my second. And you have that short gap between your first two and then a big one. Yeah. And it's way easier with the gap. Like the gap is so much easier. I tell everyone, I know it's super trendy to have kids close together, but that four year gap is amazing. Isn't it? 
Oh my God. It's, I mean, it is day and night. Cause it's basically like my kids are 16 months apart. So it's like having twins, which mm-hmm. I mean, I love it now, but I always say you pay up front when your mm-hmm. kids are back to back, you pay up front, meaning like the first two years, two to three years. And then after that, they're like little twins. Cause they can share activities, friends. Like there's a lot of just like logistically, there's a lot of benefits to that down the line, but who getting through the first couple of years, you just like, don't sleep until, you know, they're done, like till they're like five. And then we did it again. So <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. So then tell us all about your business, because okay. this is where I'm so impressed. I mean, the fact that you have three kids and a beautiful, incredible business, I think is just so powerful to highlight. So how mm-hmm. did you, what is your business and how did you start it? Okay, so I'm the executive director and founder of Ed Cahoots, which is an educational therapy practice. Um, we're now bi-coastal. We have offices in Los Angeles and Greenwich, Connecticut. Um, and we provide one-to-one support with students, children, actually all the way through adulthood uh, with learning disabilities. So individuals str- struggling with reading, writing, math, executive function skills, study skills, And we provide them the support they need to hopefully achieve their full potential. And then in addition to my practice, so there's now, I believe, 13 of us in my practice as educational therapists. I also am on the board of advisors for UC Santa Cruz uh, for their educational therapy program. I'm adjunct faculty at California State University Northridge, where I teach in the special ed department, the internship class for educational therapists. And then I'm on the board of directors for the association of ed therapists. So I'm keeping myself busy. Okay. Well, I feel like a failure, but I really (laughs) revere that you're just crushing the game. No, that's so amazing. I love that. And so I have a question. This is more like tactical for parents. So when it comes to identifying if your child needs therapy, I'm sure that's probably something that comes into play, like initially through schools. Is it like, how do people know when they need an intervention? It's a really good question. So often a school, a teacher, an administrator in that parent-teacher conference will alert you to something just being a little bit different, developing a little differently than your peers. So your peers are reading you know, at an average level, and they've kind of got these standards or benchmarks of expectation, and your child's maybe not performing at that level. That's usually a time when it's a good idea to call an educational therapist, because we can do some targeted assessments just to see where things are falling, develop a pattern or look for a pattern of strengths and challenges, and then try to intervene in those challenges to really close that gap. I often say start with educational therapy before heading to get your eight to $12,000 neuropsych exam, which will offer you a diagnosis. If you're in private school, it's great to have all of that information that you would get from a neuropsych exam. And we don't do neuropsych testing, but sometimes we can close the gap without that testing. And so I like to save family monies on the front end if we can, and trust that as ed therapists, we will recommend you to get that testing if it's really needed for your child to get accommodations. If the school recommends it, you run toward it. But often a school is kind of just hinting at a parent, you know, something's up, but we're not sure what, and that's a great time to call an educational therapist. Got it. And so do you find yourself helping kids that are getting or needing more support from public school or from private school or a total mix? 
So this is where it's interesting about educational therapy is it's in a way similar to privatized special ed. So in the public schools, often students can get the resources they need through special ed, right? Not always true because not all kids will qualify for special ed services. It can be difficult to qualify. And so sometimes you'll have a student with a reading delay, but maybe it's not significant enough to qualify for special ed. And so that's a parent who we'd want to call in private educational therapists to help. But in it's, it's often in private schools where there aren't necessarily services offered. And that's typically where we see these patterns of just differing levels of development and parents wanting to call and, and need some support. Got it. Yeah. I've heard that public schools provide a lot more support for various kind of nuances and, you know, special needs basically. So, yeah. which I was surprised by the way, as someone that knows yeah. absolutely nothing about, you know, different types of schools and all that kind of stuff. Like I would think you think, oh, private school, you're paying more. So you're going to get more resources, but mm-hmm. it's interesting and to sometimes me. Sometimes you do. Not. Private schools are starting to bring educational therapists or learning specialists on board to try to bridge that gap because The reality is you may have selected for, let's say, only the most advanced kids in society in your initial round of admissions, and maybe no one had a learning disability, but then you start accepting siblings, (laughs) and then you realize that we're not all created equal, and we shouldn't be. And what I always tell parents, too, is school is the only time in your life where you're expected to be good at everything, truly, right? The rest of us, as adults, we want to differentiate our strengths and challenges, And so it's not necessarily a bad thing that your child's this math star, but has reading delays. Let's close the gap so that the child can read, but let's really focus on those math strengths and recognize your kid's off for success here because he already knows or she already knows, or they already know what their strength is. I love that. It's so funny because I was thinking the same thing. I'm like, why do we expect our kids to be good at so many different things? Like as an adult, I could tell you 20 things I'm terrible at and I just don't do those things. And you're right. right. Like, because and I guess- accommodate them. Like I have a horrible right. sense of direction. I love GPS. Right. Like it's just- Right. It's I'm not going to spend the rest of my life improving the, my sense of direction. I'm going to focus on what I'm good at and I'm going to accommodate and work around what I'm not good at. Totally. And I do think, I guess, as we're talking through it, I'm having different thoughts of, I guess it does make sense that they want- you to be able to keep up to get at least enough of a foundation, right? To be able to eventually read or to be able to have some basic skills. And that's really what it comes down to. But I do love that you like remind everybody of that, because as you see, especially now with three kids, like you can see each child, just like probably you and I, or any other set of people, like everyone has strengths and weaknesses. That's just part of being human. But I do think it's harder when you're a parent and, you know, you're starting to be like, oh, my kid needs help. Like, oh my gosh, like, what did I do wrong? What am I doing to not support them at home? And it it does become very difficult as a parent to swallow that pill. I think we've got to drop the expectation of parents that the jack of all trades is the most successful desired outcome here. I think the reality is as parents, let's focus on nurturing our kids' strengths in whatever area they are in. If you have a, ch- a developing chess master, then skip basketball practice and focus on chess because that's where your kids' interests and passions lie and do what you can to promote them to be the best person they can be. We need to build the challenging skills so that they're not ruled out from opportunities, right? So I need you to be able to read your driver's test. I need, or my hope is that you can read your driver's test and you can read a voting ballot. 
but do you have to love novels and decide to be the most avid reader in the world and consume a novel a week? Not necessarily, right? Let's focus on what's most important to you and nurture your strengths. I love that. And the reality is in my practice, we deal with students of all ages, right? We've even actually had an adult woman in her 60s who wanted to digest the New York Times better so that she could have better, more productive conversations with her husband. So we run the gamut, but I will say our upper high school and college students are the ones who are presenting with the most mental health challenges. And it's clear that the pressure on them has become significant and it's perceived that it's coming from colleges. But again, you go into college and you declare a major, right? You're developing an area of strength. You become an expert in a specific area. College didn't care that I didn't take a foreign language in college. I I was horrible at foreign language. And guess what? UC Berkeley didn't require one from me. So focus on our strengths, but also let's just be real. What are we all running toward? Like we're pushing these kids so hard that we're building automatrons that have lost character and morality. And worst thing is they feel like crap. That's not what I want for my kids. I want good Manchi Jewish children. Um, and I, I just want them to be happy with what they do. I agree. I know. I'm so afraid of the teenage years. There's like so much stress and pressure, like on so many, it's the hormones. It's the, there's just, it. I, I'm, I'm just trying to tackle like first grade right now, you know, like, but even the pressure even starts in first grade, like the teachers, you know, when I come in for a conference, I think sometimes they feel a little intimidated because an educational therapist is walking in and, oh my God, is, you know, the child reading well enough for the ed therapist mom. And my question to my kids' teachers are, how is she doing? Is she approaching benchmarks? Is she making progress? Is she nearing grade level? And she's not, you know, the strongest reader in the class. But to me, that's a good sign. She's taking her time to grow and develop. I don't need the best reader yet. I need a kid who's learning and applying strategies and enjoys going to school. Absolutely. You know something? So we switched to a new school and I have to tell you, I was very surprised by a lot of their goals were not as kind of milestone based as, I mean, they believe me, they still have milestones not, and assessments and all that stuff, but what they kept reinforcing and it caught me off guard was we want your child to enjoy learning. So when I said yeah. to them, well, what kind of math are you teaching them? Is it Singapore math? Is it traditional? You know, cause I'm trying to make sure that when I'm home, I'm teaching them the right methodology. And do I need to study to make sure that I'm not teaching them a way that's confusing them and all this stuff, right? Like totally trying to like be on top of this to support them. Yep. And, you know, they were just like, oh, we talk about many different ways to get to the answer and, you know, critical thinking. And like, we really spur them to like, think outside the box. And I was like, what is this fluffy hippie stuff? Like, this is not, <laughs> I don't understand, but you know what I'm seeing now we're a couple months in and it's like, the kids truly are excited to be learning and yeah. they do it in different ways. They come to different answers and concepts. And it's just, it's, I don't know what type of, you know, methodology, so to speak, that really is, but I got to say, I like the idea that it's critical thinking. And I like that they're excited to learn. Here's the thing, computers and calculators and phones do most basic operations for us these days, right? And so what we need to be focusing on as schools is developing critical thinkers who have good self-control, 
because as I was, we do now do um, professional development. My team and I offer professional development to teachers. We can partner with any school and we'll come in and do professional development on reading, writing, math, and executive skills, teaching teachers tools and strategies to promote these things in the classroom and giving them models of what is reading, what is math. It could actually benefit a lot of parents too. Um, But we love doing this and teachers have given us really awesome feedback so far. But the thing we say, particularly in our executive function, kind of one day, it's a half day lecture, is that teaching the kids how to regulate themselves around their phone is more important at the moment than the calculation skill, right? Because I can do my math on a calculator, but when I then don't put that phone down and I flip through Instagram for the next four hours of my day, that's a much bigger problem to my success than knowing how to set a reminder, how to set a timer, get that phone out of my hand and get back to work. So, you know, I think critical thinking and just human skills, life skills, being a good person is where we really need to move our educational system toward developing because basic things are being occupied now by technology. I freaking love that. I've never heard anyone talk about this. I think that is like, you nailed it. It's so true. And, you know, I think it's interesting that you're highlighting the technology, like accepting what it is and that it serves a purpose. And instead of like trying to you're leaning into the reality of the world that we're, that we're really, you're embracing it. Right. Whereas I think normally it's, yeah, Yeah. that's right. Like I want my children to know how to be a nice neighbor, right. How to be a good friend, how to take care of themselves, how to know that no means no, how to turn away from their challenges. If they, if it's not something they're interested in. Right. I feel like We grew up thinking that we had to be good at everything. You better be the best basketball player, the best volleyball player, the best tennis player. You better get straight A's. And this messaging is just destroying these kids. They're walking into high school, coming from highly, highly pressured school situations. They are destroying their bodies too young because they're starting, you know, training for multiple sports really young. And these kids are crumbling. And I I just, I hope for a different future, at least for my own kids and for any kids I can reach. And I think that's the nice thing about my practice is we end up kind of in a mentorship role. We're not only helping these kids overcome academic challenges, but we really become their mentors. Like one of my college students texted me the other day and said, I know your brother lives in New York. And do you have any Vietnamese restaurant recommendations? Because I'm headed there next week. So it just shows the level of connection we try to build And we get it. We were all teenagers once. We were all college students. And students hear better from us than they do from their parents sometimes. And so it's a really neat role we serve as mentors and educational therapists. We're just really lucky. Wow. I love this. This business that you built is so amazing on so many levels. And I love what you're doing with the workshops with teachers to give them extra support. I'm sure that's definitely needed. It's Um, one of the most rewarding things I've done. You know, I get bored easily. And so I'm always trying to figure out what more I can do and how I can help the community differently. And it's been really rewarding both teaching at CSUN and getting to work with ed therapists who are just starting out their careers and then teachers who have you know, more experience, they they have classroom experience that I don't have. And I know their jobs are so hard. And I will be the first to say, I think teachers are underpaid. I know. I think after COVID, we've all come to realize teachers should be paid what, like 10x what they're paid. I agree. 
I wanted to ask you, what is the average, average, of course, I'm sure is a band, but what is the average age a child should be reading by? So it's a tough question. It depends on society, right? I appreciate it. I like to say that the by the end of second grade, so by third grade, the task of reading shifts from learning to read to reading to learn. So by third grade, you need to be able to read in order to understand the curriculum, what's being taught to you. So I give kids a long runway, right? Through kind of that end of second grade, even through that summer. We see signs early on. So if you are concerned about a reader's development, you can get to an educational therapist early on. And we can usually tell pretty early if this is just something that hasn't been instructed yet, right? Because every school teaches reading differently. And a lot of schools do not use explicit systematic instruction. So those that do, that we know are using that, we might look at a delayed reader and say, this student's having really solid instruction and they're not picking up kind of the building blocks of reading, we should start intervening. Other times, we know it's a really developmental school that doesn't necessarily push or teach reading in a certain way. And so we say, you know what, this child hasn't really been exposed. And we work with the school to figure out, is the kid kind of developmentally on track for your school? And if so, they may not need intervention yet. They may get a longer runway. Or we start looking at some of, there's some underlying skills that relate to the development of reading, particularly auditory skills. And we can assess those and say, you know what, these kind of precursory skills to reading are pretty weak. These building blocks are pretty weak. We'd like to intervene just to give this child a boost so that when instruction does pick up, they're really ready to receive it. Love that. Many kids benefit from ed therapy, but we never try to put a kid into educational therapy just to make them the best at something, right? Like my kid reads fine, but I want them getting all nines and tens on their standardized assessment. That's not a kid for ed therapy. The kid for ed therapy is the one who's like really struggling to kind of just overcome this hurdle. And we can teach them some skills and strategies to really boost their confidence. Okay, but you said something incredibly important. And again, I've heard nobody talk about this. And this is something that I think parents need to become aware of as well. Because what you just said, I had an experience, me and one of my friends had an experience where we started at the same preschool. It was a very strong preschool academically. And our kids, both of the kids, same age, exactly, almost to the day, both had about the same number of sounds down, like that they Mm -hmm. knew. Yeah going into kindergarten. So most of their sounds, maybe they were missing two or three, you know, like the the alphabet that they knew. Okay. So you essentially have two kids exactly neck and neck, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So both, both capable kids. So one of them went to public school. One of them went, continued on through the private school at that school into kindergarten. And one of them, the one that was at our current school, it was, it was Carter. Okay. He was starting to read kind of midway through kindergarten. Right. Mm -hmm. And the friend who had gone to a different school, it happened to be a public school, still a good school, by the way, she started, she got wind that, Oh my gosh, your kid's starting to read. Like we should be reading. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, wait a minute. I can tell you because Carter just started reading. And what I noticed is that he came home with the book that teaches him rules about Mm -hmm. how to read and how to break down different words that he then applies. 
Mm-hmm. And so like, for example, like the word uh, like, L-I-K-E, right? And he would say, okay, the E at the end of that word, like the E helps the I say its mm-hmm. own name, right? So yeah. they have all these, and I had never heard of any of these, you know, in it's phonics base and you're nodding because you've heard, you, you probably know all about this, but I didn't know anything, right? So what I was surprised about was that what he was doing was he was able to break down words by applying this framework that he had been given. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when I spoke to my friend, I told her that I said, look, your son is really smart. I already know I would not be worried. It, I don't think he was given any of the, these strategies. So I wouldn't yep. be worried. Exactly. So this is where reading gets really confusing, right? Some kids just intuit this naturally. So my daughter's friend, I think by the end of preschool, could pick up a novel and just read it. And as educational therapists, I mean, I'm sending videos of this child to my team saying, wait, we spent our lives teaching reading. How does this happen? Like there was no explicit instruction given to this child. He literally just intuited how to read. And we know the brain does not know how to read naturally or else we'd all come out doing it. We would just all develop overnight into readers. So it's not a built-in brain task. There's networks wired for it. They have to learn to work together. He intuited it. You see kids like that, and then parents start assuming that that's the normal trajectory of reading development, and it's not. Most students do need explicit systematic instruction. The intensity is what changes for a kid with the learning disability. But schools should have in place some form of formal phonics program that they use at least K through two that teaches these explicit phonics rules. And then from there, if a child is not kind of keeping on pace, that's where educational therapy kind of swoops in with a parent phone call and really gives the child more intensity with these same rules and these same principles. And we're aware of, I think, every curriculum out there. So we can work with a student's curriculum to help them overcome these challenges. Most of the population, even students with dyslexia, become proficient readers. About 3% of the population is fairly treatment resistant. I've only seen it once in my practice, and I would bear to say most educational therapists will never see it, but I've been in practice over 12 years. And it really is someone who can still end up reading, but they have delayed fluency. So reading still remains really hard and slow and laborious. And in those situations, we recommend introducing audiobooks as much as possible so that someone can still be exposed to the grammar and language of reading and still have reading enjoyment and can even try to read along with their eyes. But for someone where reading is really, really still a significant labor challenge, audiobooks can fill that gap so they can still access the world of books. I actually use audiobooks with all my kids early on because they want access to these high level stories that they can't yet read. And I can't read to them 24 hours a day, which I think my daughter would like in life. So she also has access to an Alexa and we have an Audible account and she reads books by listening. And the reality is that promotes a kid's comprehension similar to them reading to themselves. And so I really encourage parents to always read to their kids nightly. But as a mom of three, I know you relate. Reading to three kids nightly can be quite difficult. So supplement with audiobooks as needed. We're humans, right? We only have so much potential to put three kids to bed all at the same time. So audiobooks are a great tool. Public Library offers a lot of audiobooks for free. And audible.com has really cool narrators that make your audible interesting. I love that. I did not know that that was a good, rec- like a, a way to nurture their 
reading. I will say, have you heard of an app called Raz Kids? Do you know about yes. that? Yes. So that was like a blow up during the pandemic, right? We all loved it. <laughs> I, I just learned about it this year. So I guess I missed that. I guess I wasn't, I should have called you and asked you then, but um, I asked you, I only became aware of it because our kids' school uses it. Yeah. It's and a it, great like, online digital library of books. Yeah. It's awesome. They were free during the pandemic. Oh, I don't know wow. if they are. Yeah. <laughs> wow. That's great to know. Well, and you know, I did not know this, but you said something that your practice does. And I don't know if this is common in the industry, but I'm shocked that you just said you actually partner with the schools. When a child comes in, you will go and do that research and understand, you know, is the school providing the instruction? Like you use that as yes. part of your, your assessment. Is that normal? Cause that feels very above and I beyond. I mean, I can't therapy practices, but I can say, we see ourselves as part of the puzzle, right? And we never want to assume that a child is just delayed or deficit because of something innate to them. So we're looking at the environmental factors that could be impacting a child's development so that they're not slapped with a label that they don't deserve. And there are a lot of environmental factors, a school's pace of instruction, a school's quality of instruction, a child's relationship with his teacher. And then there's internal factors too, right? A child's innate abilities, a child's attention, a child's cognitive potential. All of these things work together. My favorite story is I had a child once who wouldn't read for anyone. And by about second grade, he was reading only to me. He clearly knew how to read, but he wouldn't read to anyone but me. And it became clear that the external pressure on him was so great to read at a level and the internal pressure too, that he was only going to read if he could do it perfectly. And so he waited until like the end of second grade until his parents heard him read for the first time because he had to do it perfectly. Now, part of my job as an educational therapist is to help him get over that gap. And that's why it's not tutoring, right? It's educational therapy because we want to work on that anxiety that's standing in his way and refer him to an anxiety specialist. But it just goes to show how there's so many factors that come into play in children's learning and both what they take in and then what they're able to put out their performance. I agree. I think that the kids, I think we severely underestimate the kids wherewithal in terms of external pressure and people looking at them. And they definitely do feel it because with Carter, what happened was we had a breakthrough. He, I was trying to get him to read for a long time and I was very defeated. And I'm like, okay, it must be because I'm the mom. And like the way I'm doing it is obviously like, not like the pressure or whatever, however I'm doing it, it's not working. So thankfully he went to school. Right. And so we started picking up these tools, but he wasn't really reading in class. And I think that he did have some like anxiety with his teacher, like separate from this reading issue. And what happened was he did not start to read until the winter break last year at this, almost at this exact time. And so he came home with his like C Jane run or whatever book. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't until him and I sat down and I told him like, just give it your best shot. Like I kind of worked with him and it was a very low pressure environment at that point where I'm like, just, just give it like, I kind of tried to make it non-pressure and he and then if he like, didn't remember one of the rules, I'm like, oh, it's exactly what you just said. You know, it. it's the same thing. So here, you know, so we sort of like worked on it together, I guess. Mm -hmm. And he goes, mommy, he said this to me and I was a little bit stunned. He goes, mommy, I'm only able to read with you. And I was like, what? Mm -hmm. And he's like, yeah, because I just, you just make it easier. And I realized the pressure in class was preventing him from trying because he's a mm -hmm. perfectionist. Yep. Yep. 
I mean, there's a few things in there that stand out to me too, from what you said. One is the parental pressure during the pandemic to be the teacher of their own children. Like all I kept thinking while you were saying that was schools should teach children to read. Parents shouldn't have to, but the pandemic made it so hard for kids and teachers and parents. So I commend you for taking on a role that you were not trained to do other than that you read. Right. But I, my heart goes out to parents that, you know, imagine the parents sitting there teaching their kids physics. Uh, Homeschooling <laughs> parents, too, bless you all. That's why we just have to give kids a little bit of space and grace, right? And recognize these external factors that we may or may not see. And they may not even really be there if we walked into Carter's classroom and looked at his relationship with the teacher. We may not feel it, but he does, right? And that's where we've got to give them grace to develop, but also recognize there is a point at which reading should start to click. And if it's not, seek extra support. But I I think there's pressure, particularly in private schools, that kids should be reading by the end of kindergarten. And it's just not true. And I will tell you, a lot of the kids that are reading really young, they're decoding. They are sounding out words accurately. But a big piece of reading, there's kind of two main components. You have to sound out the words correctly and recognize words automatically. But you have to understand what you're reading. And without either of those factors, you don't have reading. And sometimes parents get so caught up in a child sounding out the words and reading them correctly, they forget that that's totally futile if you're not making sense of what you're reading. And that's why I say reading to your kids nightly and still making that a joint activity, even once your child reads, is really essential. Because even if Carter's, let's say, now reading at a second grade level, you can read to him at a sixth grade level. And there's probably books of interest that may be developmentally appropriate that he wants to listen to, but he's not quite yet ready to access himself. And so even once you have a fluent reader, we encourage parents, given time constraints, continue to read to their children. It also models fluent reading. As my daughter came home yesterday and said, you know, there's robot readers and there's fluent readers. When you're a developing reader, you're a robot reader. Well, when, when the robot readers are reading to me, I can't comprehend. So imagine if that was your only daily reading experience was practicing sounding out words, you're losing reading enjoyment and you're not hearing good reading. And so that's where a parent or caretaker, I don't mean to put all the pressure on parents, but parent, caretaker, grandparent, whoever it is, even an older sibling can who can read fluently can take on that role of still keeping the enjoyment alive while we're learning to read. Wow. Okay. That's a really great tip. I haven't been doing that as much. I feel like sometimes I'll, I'll take out like, for example, James and the giant peach, like I'll take out some chapter books and try and make it more of like a, instead of having Carter and Charlotte reading separately, I try and make it like we even bring in London and we'll like make it more like a family thing. Yeah. Um, is that probably the best way to start with chapter books is like read levels ahead and expose yeah, them? whatever their interest level is in. So like Sometimes, you know, a first grader will see third graders reading a common novel and they're kind of interested in it, but they can't read it. So take him to a bookstore or library and see what where his interest lies and then read those books to him. But also let him read the baby books to his siblings because that builds his fluency. So he can work on his fluency, his pacing and his prosody with books that aren't challenging his word attack skills. So really easy baby books. He's going to be able to animate and read beautifully to them, Right. Books that are kind of at his grade level, he's still practicing sounding out. Those aren't going to sound great. And the baby in particular is going to lose interest. And then to really promote his comprehension, choose books that are above his word attack level and choose things that are high interest. Like my daughter's on book 70. I wish I were joking 
of Babysitter's Club, which I know is questionable and there's parents judging me out there, but she's in love with it. And I'm not going to take this away now. I think there's 125. I wish Ann Martin would somehow find a way to gift me these audibles free um, because my audible account is out of control. My daughter's asking for audible credits for Hanukkah, but (laughs) she truly digests every book. And that just shows her comprehension and interest level are so far beyond her first grade reading level. So she's listening to it. She's listening. So whether I read it to her or she does it on audiobook, it's building her comprehension and she picks up turns of phrase and all this rich language. Thank you, Anna Martin, for writing quality literature, but that she wouldn't have access to if she was reading these, you know, Bob books all day, which are more at her reading level. I mean, my husband Bo and I laugh because we have this like uh, Barbie book that she picked up at the bookstore one day and it's like four word sentences and we read it to her and I can't understand what's happening in the Barbie book because the language is so remedial that it doesn't make sense to me. Right. <laughs> and that's what it feels like with a Bob book. Like, thank God the Bob book has pictures to help support us. But if that's your only reading exposure, because we're so focused on kids sounding out words, they're either going to lose enjoyment in reading or just be underexposed to the rich language of literature. And that's where our role as parents is to invite them back into that and give them access to stuff that they can't yet access themselves. I love that. I love that. Okay. This is great. Okay. Now I want to ask you something. This is more on the behavioral, like in the context of course of like learning and all of that. Now we know that there's thoughts and behaviors that come into play as a child is learning or, you know, resisting learning or whatever. How do you support your child if they're, for example, like resisting either a specific subject or they're not listening to their teachers? Like, where? how do we even start to tackle more of the behavioral issues? Like any tips? And I'm sure it depends on what the behavior is, but let's just say yeah. they're just not thriving in in school on the behavioral side. Like, are there anything... Is there anything that we should look at more specifically? Like how how do we even begin to address that? So I generally believe that if children can, they will. And so often I think if a child is exerting behaviors of resistance or avoidance, something is probably difficult. Now, it may not be the subject, right? The subject may be easy, but what may be difficult is paying attention in that subject. So maybe the subject is too easy or maybe it's too hard. So I try to understand what's why there's this resistance, right? And often kids know if you give them something as simple as an easy hard line and you literally draw a line on a piece of paper as a continuum and put one side easy and one side hard and you ask them to label various activities and subjects, they have a lot of insight. So let's say your, you know, young student puts reading is hard there and the teacher saying, you know, Johnny's just not paying attention in reading class. Well, reading might be hard for Johnny and let's dive in and figure out why. And that's, again, where an educational therapist can help pick up on people rarely notice off the bat that a child's not comprehending because if they're sounding out the words, I was the master of this in school. I could sound out any word, but I was not making meaning and the books were just not interesting to me. I remember the day when my mom said to me, while you're reading, you're supposed to be making a movie in your mind. And it was like a light bulb went off. And that's so obvious to all of you who are excellent comprehenders. But when you're not born a natural comprehender, right, and you have to work on those skills, that was like, oh my gosh, I'm supposed to take these words and make pictures in my mind. And when you actively do that, you become more engaged. 
Now, I didn't act out in class. I just sat there flipping all the pages at the pace that I thought was appropriate to keep up. And if the teacher called on me, I knew where we were and I would read out loud with perfect, you know, word attack skills and great accuracy. But I wasn't making meaning, so it was hard to see. And then you have other kids who are struggling with attention, right? They're literally just struggling to keep their bodies still in the seat. And their teacher's asking them to sit there for a 45-minute period learning basic math skills that maybe this child already knows how to do the math. So I think the key is partner with the teacher, partner with your child, and just try to understand their resistance as opposed to assuming that it's just negative behavior, that they're just not behaving, right? There's usually some reason behind it. Oh my gosh, that is brilliant. We had one of the kids' report card come home very good. But then in like art is subject that you would think the child would enjoy. It was around some behavioral feedback about that. And it was like, huh, okay, what's going on? And honestly, I didn't, I don't know how to, how to break down that problem. So I'm going to do that exact exercise. Find out what's hard about art. Like I think of it like an iceberg, right? The tip of the iceberg is the behavior. As we know from even babies, right? The crying isn't necessarily about just crying. It's I'm hungry. I'm tired. I need to be comforted and held. The behavior is probably the tip of the iceberg. I bet something about art is difficult, challenging, boring, something, right? Or there's a difficult relationship with a teacher, a difficult relationship with a peer, a sense a poor self-esteem in art, or just a lack of interest. And while we need to then bring in the behavior, so we kind of want to figure out the underlying cause. If it's really just a lack of interest, that's something you can try to reflect on with the teacher. But let's say we have a really rigid teacher who can't modify assignments around a child's interest levels. Then you just talk about a behavior and you talk about, here's the behavior that's expected in art class. Here's what we expect of you. We know this is not your interest and passion and that you're probably not going to become a famous artist someday. And here's what we expect from you. You just need to complete the work and turn it into the best of your abilities. Because the reality is we all have to do things that are hard and unenjoyable for us. And we we don't necessarily have to do it great, but we do have to do it with a level of respect and for a teacher. Oh, I love that. Okay, great. Can you come like parent my kids now? Because you don't have enough. Yeah. When I figure out how to read to all three at bedtime, I'll let you know. Okay. Um, Okay. Yeah. Please let me know. Okay. You are amazing. We are hitting up against time, but I do want to ask you being a, obviously a very successful entrepreneurial female mother of three. One, I just want to say you rock, but do you have any tips to survival, surviving motherhood, balancing it all, like any insights, anything you've learned, things that are the most challenging that you've learned from, like any nuggets of insights of how you can somehow continue doing all of this? (laughs) I think a few things. One is take the mask off, right? And ask for help. So we want to be superheroes and truly the amount of people that tell me in my life, oh my gosh, you're superwoman. And I think I just want to take the cape off for a minute, right? Can you hold the baby so I can take the cape off for a minute? So ask for help, rely on other moms and then get support in whatever way you need. Um, We are very fortunate that we have an amazing team of people that help us between nannies and grandparents, friends, but you can't do it alone. It looks like everyone else has it together because Instagram and Facebook and, you know, dinners with friends, people like to present that way, but get real. And it's time as a society to get real, to 
take off the masks and just show each other, Hey, I'm struggling this week. I need help. That's beautiful. And I love the raw, real honesty. And I, I definitely have to say yes to all of that. Okay. My last question for you is as a female boss, what is one thing other female, whether they're managers or even coworkers, but predominantly women that are rising in their organizations at work, or if they're, you know, even the CEO, like what is one way that you like to help other women help their help nurture and support their growth as, you know, kind of woman to woman. Cause that's something I think yeah. men do really well and women tend to not. Do you have any insights on that? So I haven't ever been in a corporate world with men because my practice currently is only women. So I will say it's easier to work with only, it, it is easy to work with only women because we're there to really nurture and support each other. I think the reality is to help people find balance because we're all going to be most effective. And I think Google in some way brought this, you know, to everyone's awareness years ago, we need balance in our lives to be productive employees. And so places that are expecting people to work, you know, ungodly hours and uh, that are underpaid, it's just going to lead to resentment and an unhappiness. And so I encourage my employees to set boundaries and to find balance. I will say that a recent law in California, the passage of AB5 that took away a lot of small businesses' abilities to independently contract people did change the way in which we as a practice were able to operate. Women in my practice used to have a lot more flexibility in the way we worked and were really able to set their own boundaries and prioritize being with their families. Since the passage of AB5, which required us to employ people that offer services within the business we operate, expectations did change. And it's harder to find that balance, but I'm trying to, you know, make sure that as a female business owner of a practice right now occupied by women, uh, that I really try to help my employees find balance and, and be able to just be with their children and their spouses and be the people, the moms, the women they want to be. Oh God, I love you. You're just so fabulous on, on so many levels. Thank you. I love you too. You're the best. And I appreciate you putting all this out in the world. One of the things I love about your podcast is just how it's real conversations. And as I said, that's what I worry people aren't having. So I thank you for creating a space for people to have real conversations. Thank you. All right. That is it for today. Now, as you know, some of our best conversations actually happen after the show. So I want you to find me on Instagram at Kimberly Lovey and let me know your thoughts about today's show. You can screenshot this episode and let us know what your biggest takeaway was and tag me at Kimberly Lovey and we can share it on our stories. I will see you again, same time, same place next week.